0: We're in Advent. Advent means coming. It's a season before Christmas, so we're preparing for the coming of the celebration of Christmas, but also the coming of God's good realm that's trying to break in and fits and starts, and sometimes we resist it, and sometimes we welcome it. So that's what Advent's all about. This is the fourth Sunday in Advent with the candles, so Advent 1, that was a uh, a few weeks ago begins with, uh, we've been focusing on Luke chapter 1 for our whole Advent season here. And it's a long chapter with lots of really good narrative stories. Advent begins with a priest named Zechariah. Um, getting notice in the temple, uh, he has a like a vision, with angel appears to him, that Elizabeth, his wife, in her old age, will bear a son to be called Yohanan. I'm impressing Lisa with my Jewish pronunciation of the term, um, or John for you, um, Goyim. And then Zechariah is stunned into being mute. He can't speak for nine months. So that's all Advent 1. Advent 2 is six months into Elizabeth's pregnancy. Word of another pregnancy is sent to a young woman in Galilee named Miriam. Famous name in Jewish thought. Miriam was the sister of Moses. Uh, Gentiles know her as Mary. Advent 3. Mary visits her cousin Elizabeth. They're related, you see, and busts out in this prophetic song worthy of one of the great prophets of old, and an Advent 4 is today, and that's our text, the birth of John the Baptist. So we're primed Uh, after today for the celebration of Christmas tomorrow. So um, let's just read the first half on our text here, and I'll suggest some underlines if you're underlining with me. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. You can underline that. They shared her joy. They is the most prominent group in this thing. They, the neighbors. Remember the neighbors, the villagers. This is all taking place in a village in the um, southern edge of the Judean hills. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, as was customary, and they were going to name him. You might want to underline that. They were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother, Elizabeth, spoke up and said, No, he's to be called John. They said to her, There's no one among our relatives who has that name. So there were customs of who to name and how, and they were violating that custom. And then they made signs to his father, underline that, that's funny, to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately his, Zechariah's mouth was opened. Remember, he had been caused to be mute in that vision. Many months earlier, and his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbors were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, when, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. And then that whole second section on your sheet is essentially the Jewish version of everything's going to be all right. Uh, only it's uh, spoken as though everything is already all right in a kind of a prophetic mode of it's already happened and we're experiencing it, although everyone knows everything is far from being all right. And then the very last sentence gets us into who this child became. The child grew and became strong in spirit and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. This is the John the Baptist we may be familiar with. So... Picture this in this village in, in the hills of Judea. Um, all the neighbors in this small town, you know, they know exactly what's going on. And they, it seems like they just show up en masse on Circumcision Day, which is traditionally the eighth day after the birth of the boy. It's called the bris in, uh, you know, Jewish uh, understanding now. Uh, one dad I know several years ago uh, is a big base basketball fan, and he's hosting a bris. In his house for his newborn kid, and when most of the guests have arrived, he announced, "When should we expect the ceremony to begin?" And he said, "Tip off a ten, everyone," which I thought was hilarious. So, so there are, yeah, I know, there are actually uh, comedic elements to Luke's narration of Zechariah. And Elizabeth. So you got to remember that these stories, before they were read and heard read, they were like first acted out in in Israel and the surrounding areas. They were like they were oral tradition before they were written tradition, and so they were told. And, you know, this is Middle Eastern culture, so the stories were like acted out. They were told with lots of gestures and kind of like half acting out as you're reading along. So in that first Advent 1 reading that we had a few weeks ago, when Zechariah gets this news and this vision in the temple that his old wife, Elizabeth, is going to become pregnant, he he's struck mute. And then when he comes out, he comes out of the temple. Now, he was a priest. And so, there were so many priests in Israel that there was a rotation for when you could actually serve in the temple. You might serve in the temple like once every three or four or seven years. So, his relatives would have been there for his... honor of serving in the temple as a priest. He comes out and he's probably speaking to his fellow, um, you know, villagers. And he's reduced to telling this news about the angel visitation using hand motions. So, you know, for an angel, the hand motions, you know, you can do the snow angel. There's all sorts of things you can do to gesticulate and indicate. But how does he tell that Elizabeth will get pregnant using hand motions? Um, Let us not speculate at this time concerning that but this was this would have been part of like the telling of this story would have been humorously conveyed probably so nine months later now we're advent four. our reading the neighbors in this story they're trying to communicate with the still mute zechariah notice by making signs they're trying to make signs he, he he's mute he's not deaf <laughs> but Zechariah has been making signs because he can't speak and we tend to mirror one another just naturally. And so they're gesticulating and making signs as if he's deaf. It's, it's funny. Um, it's like when you catch yourself, raised, you know, you're talking with someone who is just learning English. And so not only do you slow down when you speak to them, but you raise your voice to speak to them as if they're deaf, but they're not deaf. They're just learning English. We get these things mixed up. The naming scene has some humorous elements. Um, Have you ever noticed how um, people get nosy around pregnant women? Like, I mean, it's unbelievable. The forwardness and nosiness that people experience who are pregnant like some stranger. How far along are you? Or um, was it a surprise, you know, like w- what birth control method failed you or what? Y- y- you know, in the age of maximum transparency in YouTube videos, even the, like intimate details of labor and delivery become like, oh, that's just a matter of public record. Whether there was an episiotomy or an epidural or when did your mu- mucus plug come out or it's, it's, it's just ridiculous. Um, here, the neighbors are in that same kind of, you know, this communal experience so this is happening. They're all part of the story. And so they barge over for the bris, and they start telling the parents what the child should be named. I mean, come on. The, the neighbors are telling the parents what the child is named, and Elizabeth has to butt in with his name is Johanan. Um... It's like a breach of family tradition right there in the, in the story. She's breaking the, the code of the culture. They don't like that, so they turn all I picture them like all in unison, going from Elizabeth turning to Zechariah, to the dad, and they start, you know, doing their hand gestures, even though we can hear. And in that chaos, he gestures for a tablet, and he backs his wife. His name is Yohanan. Then he adds, the goys will call him John, and the Southern Baptists will claim him as a patron saint. So all of that comes out in that, in that scene. If you're going home for Christmas and Aunt Dorothea gets on your case for neglecting a family tradition, you can point out this text that it's part of the original Christmas story, that there are traditions that are broken, and then go get Aunt Dorothea some more spiked cider and everything will be fine. So, but, but there's actually a serious point to all this um, because, you know, the Jews in this region Um, the Galilee, the um, part of uh, Judea where Elizabeth and uh, her husband is. um, They're under a lot of stress. Um, Everybody knows it. It's like they're under Roman occupation. Um, They're taxed into subsistence living. Um, You know, all the petty inconveniences that come with being under occupation checkpoints and you don't even have freedom of movement and then the horrors of military occupation life was not easy for anyone and yet and because of they made an extra point to celebrate with each other the sorrow and rejoicing have to be able to go together if there's going to be any rejoicing at all in this world. You know, I'm I'm very well aware um, that during the Christmas season, you know, we've got like endless readings and carols about childbirth and and how difficult that can be uh, for those who are, you know, facing the heartache around those questions. Um, Many other losses that people have um, are felt actually more acutely during Christmas. Um, family members who are not here with us. For some of us here, there's like a lost family. This is the first Christmas without them. Or um, families that, for religious reasons, can't celebrate who we are or who we love. All that stuff just kind of uh, is in our face in the Christmas season. And, you know, part of being community with each other is... Rejoicing with those who rejoice and mourning with those who mourn and that's where the mourning part is more difficult for us Because in our culture mourning is so private and so it takes extra wisdom for how to mourn with someone Who's mourning but all of that has to happen? it has to happen simultaneously so the rejoicing in this small village was happening alongside all that sorrow and that grief. And But the grief, though it's unnamed in the text, is absolutely understood in, in Matthew's gospel. So Luke and Matthew, the four gospels, are the only ones that talk about uh, this stuff. And all we know about... Um, John the Baptist in Matthew is the severity of his life. We meet him as an adult and he's thundering prophetic denunciations and he's eating locusts and wild honey and he's an ascetic out, the, out there in the desert. Um, but Luke wants us to see that John grew up and he grew up celebrated by his village. So at the very last verse in your reading there it talks about how John grew in spirit and then he, you know, went out to the desert. But the big part of his growing in spirit was he was celebrated by his community. Um, You know, the the text opens, her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy and they shared her joy. Um, Then Luke Hastens to add, all the neighbors were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child uh, going to be? It, it kind of makes you all the positive attention it wasn't a bit much for John. And uh, his move to the desert later in life was to get away from all the hype, you know, and the the speculation. What would it be like to grow up with this kind of expectation on you? But still, he grew up and he was celebrated. And that was part of his growing in spirit. That was part of his strength that helped him to uh, speak the way he did later in the desert from the desert. So, you know, it really bothers me that um, many in our congregation are not celebrated as they ought to be when they go back home to their families on Christmas time. Um, you know, some of our, our brethren are at family day where they're getting a dose of that crazy making Christian love, you know, that says, oh, I love you, honey, but I'm so disappointed uh, by your choices. You know, that sucks. That's horrible. That's just bad. It should bother us all. You know, there, there's so much um, dysfunction in families, right? We live in an unjust world, and, and that's all leaks into our families. Um, and, and a result of that is that people who ought to be celebrated aren't celebrated, and that's a great sorrow. Um, you know, if that's your situation, um, throw yourself a party, you know, and invite only the people who will celebrate with you, Like, we've got to really work a little extra hard at celebrating each other. Um, and let's keep our eyes out for each other to mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. This is really, like, critical for being uh, a community together. And, and this is where I want to honor, I don't know if James and Jane have, uh, oh, there they are. Oh, they're sitting in the back. Um, why don't you just stand up just so people can take an eye, yeah. Oh, go ahead and come up to the front and sit down on the front. And yeah, that's James. That's he's the rector of Saint Clair. This rector means ruler, just in case you wanted to know. And Jane Waverick is uh, James's wife. And um, right. And I follow her in respect. Thank you. Um, so I want to honor these two. Um, uh, they're our guests today, but you know they're really actually our hosts. Um, so. My story of meeting James, I met him in 2003 at the uh, Interfaith Roundtable, uh, which is like an interfaith group that um, people from all sorts of different religious traditions meet once a month, and I happened to go to this one. It was the first one I went to, I think, and uh, James uh, reached out to me, and he described himself to me. I was an evangelical at the time. He described himself as a liberal evangelical, and I thought, well, that sounds like fun. I'd like to get to know this guy. I wonder what that looks like. I don't think I've met one of these before, so he was uh, very cagey. Um, That was 2003, maybe by 2006, 2007. James and I were having beer once a month, or we, I mean, we used to meet and pray together and share. And by that time, I was speaking pretty freely with James about my growing concerns about the church and LGBT. And, and um, you know, uh, when we had the troubles that led to this church forming, uh, James, was, James was the first person I texted to say, well... We're leaving the old place and we're starting a new one. Uh, And he replies, as soon as he got the text, uh, need a place to meet. How about our social hall? You know, he he probably didn't know that like my greatest anxiety in that those few weeks was where the heck are we going to find a place to meet? Because Ann Arbor is the kind of place where all these like startup churches start startup churches, and they use all the available like school places and community places, and it's hard to find a place to meet. And so that was like, oh, what a relief! Um, and then when we started the services here, uh, this lasted for a good six months. I don't know those of you who were here when we started back in 2015. Remember, it was like we were. Um, Zechariah and Elizabeth and we were having this new, you know, this new church and all the St. Clarians would would like migrate, you know, before their service or between their service and they would come over here and they would look at us and they would, you know, they would hug us and they would they were so happy to see us and and that was actually so beautiful for us because we had been surrounded with a lot of like disapproval and controversy and all that kind of stuff. And and, and St. Clair provided like a, a little love nest to, uh, to bring us back to life, so to speak. And that was very much the work of James and Jane. So um You might know that James uh, introduced me to my now wife, Julia. Um, You might not realize that when when you lose a much-beloved spouse and then later you start dating, um, it can be very distressing and upsetting to the people in your circle who know the beloved spouse. Like, that's just a thing. Paul warned me about that. That's That's a thing. And that thing was happening, and for a set of... Religious reasons, it was happening like with greater intensity. And it's really hard to be newly happy after a season of loss and then be surrounded by people who are upset with you. That is really hard. But there's James, and I should say especially Jane, (laughs) who were like flat out rejoicing. They were practically giddy with joy for me, and, and I could tell you some stories about that, um, but they were delightful. Um, you know, I think I can speak for many of us uh, that we're proud of our church, Blue Ocean. We are, um, but we're also proud of what our host, um, St. Clair's and Temp- Temple Beth Emmett, have accomplished. Um, there may be another church that partners like this with a synagogue. I think I think there may be. There's probably a few of these in the country. Um, I doubt there's another one that has taken in a non denominational church to meet at their same time of service as St. Clair's has. Um, I doubt there's one that also runs a food pantry that is sponsored by an Episcopal church, a reform synagogue, and a Muslim social service agency. That's what happened. You know, every week on Thursdays right over there in that yellow house called the Wisdom House. And it really takes a lot of behind-the-scenes leadership to pull off an interfaith partnership. Um, It really does. I mean, we all grossly underestimate how much leadership that actually takes. And especially at a time when people are spitting nails at each other over much smaller difference than that Um, it's hard to get like a group of people to come together for an interfaith luncheon let alone share a building and share some things that you actually do together for the community and um, i think james and I hope they're um, leaving st clair's with a sense of uh having contributed considerably to the legacy of this place. Um, I, I didn't even mention they both actually had a key role in um, getting high school and ministry, um, uh, middle school ministry at the diocesan level. That's like 80 churches in. Michigan didn't have anything going for high school students to get all the people from all the churches together and And uh, it was James and Jan that pretty much got that going in the diocese of uh, Michigan So they they leave a lot behind that they've had their hands in and I hope um, I hope they're proud of what they've done and I hope that uh, we are considered part of their legacy So have a couple of gifts Um, Now the thing about gifts it's really you can't make people open up gifts in Public, you know, because like my kids, you know, they'd always go through a stage where some aunt would give them a gift, and they're like, "What am I supposed to do with this?" And go, shh, 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 you know, so one of these gifts is going to be that it's a Matali tile, um, but there's no accounting for taste, so there's a gift receipt in there, and you can <laughs> return it for something else. But this one, we're going to be bold, and we're going to have them open this one because it has some meaning. So come on over here, and you can. Open this. Um, oh, just, there will be more time for that. Hold it in front of us all. We're going to explain what it is. Okay. This is a little piece of art by an Arabic um, art. Right on. Yeah. Arabic um, calligrapher named Nahad Khan. And I have a, I have a friend, uh, James Brown, who's an art professor at Wayne State University. He heard about him. That's it. And, um, okay, so that means earth in Arabic. And it's blue. Oh. And the ocean is a, the biggest part of the earth. Mm-hmm. And so, James, your know, yeah. interfaith thing yeah. and blue ocean. That is cool. That is that's cool, isn't it? Yeah. And he's, I, can, I can see the twinkle. <laughs> that's genuine delight on his face, okay? And then... You can open this privately and okay. either be excited or disappointed and it's t- you're totally free one way or another. And the the little receipts in there. Um we should do something. We should um I don't know what should we do. Do we have oil? Let's have let's have Tim, who's our, our board uh president currently come on up and Carla, who's going to be our board president, at least we're going to nominate her, and then we're going to elect her next year to be our board <laughs> <laughs> president. So, uh, come up. And uh, Lorinda can come up because she's going to be the priest today, leading the communion part of the service. And maybe L- Lisa could come up. And um, Dave Nelson is a good, is uh, a good charismatic kind of guy. He could come on up here. And, um, so we're giving you the yeah they're really they're really cool people um, All right. How are you? now you can say something, James, before we bless you, and then you have to come up with some kind of blessing for us that you say out loud. Okay. This is not live sorry Oh there you go mm-hmm um, Thank you, and um, we love you and are glad that you're here and doing what you're doing as followers of Jesus. And uh, it's, uh, it's been a blessing for me. And, um, you know, maybe after I've gone to Arizona someday, you can invite me back to preach, and that'd be fun. You know, yeah, fun and I could have an excuse to come back, yeah. And um, I'm really going to miss uh, having beer with Ken, so I may invite him to Arizona some. So if you don't know where he is, maybe that'll be where it is, right? And what else? What else should I say? Hmm? Well, I could say something. Yeah. I'm going to try to say this without crying. Um, So I'm an Episcopalian, and the way you all worship is not actually how I would choose to worship, but (laughs) I think that when I watch you all, which I've had the chance to do over the years, like, you guys are totally where the kingdom of God is, and it's like really amazing to watch you as a congregation and the way that you be honest with who you are and who each other are, and really love and support each other. So I always tell people to come here. Um, and I'm just really glad that I had the chance to kind of witness what you all are doing in the world, and it's really exciting. So I wanted to share that with you. I'm Amen. You, Jane. All right. So um, let's go over here. Let's see uh, you guys. Uh... I'm going to do the anointing here, Carla and Tim. You stand in front of them here. Yeah, a little, little, uh, you know, just uh, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All right. Yep. Got some. Good. On the forehead. Yep. We bless you. Amen. And Jane. We're not quite done yet, James. We (laughs) bless you. (laughs) And we just, um, we're so thankful um, for, for having friends and allies at such a critical period in our history and um, we thank you for the sense of being knit together with them and um, serving together with them. We thank you for the honor of their friendship Um, and we pray that um, they'd go off with a sense of having been blessed and we pray that you would go before them and you'd meet them in Phoenix, and um, you're well acquainted with Phoenix and the surrounding area, and you know you're well acquainted with all of their needs, uh, spoken and unspoken, and so we pray that you'd go in advance and that you would meet them when they arrive, and they'd have a sense of um, coming to where you are and following you and being present with you and um, discovering the Um, the nest that you are preparing for them. We pray the Holy Spirit would rest on them for um, whatever purposes and plans um, are ahead of them, and they would be empowered to accomplish those there in the way that they've accomplished them here, and we send them off with our love and yours. Amen. 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 Thank you. You're welcome. Okay.